0: Hey, everyone. David here. Before we bring you today's episode, which is a doozy, you'll enjoy it, we have some news. This will be our last episode of Politically Sound. For those of you who have been avid listeners, and for those of you listening for the first time, we want to thank you. We created this podcast during a turbulent time in U.S. politics, a presidential election like no other, crucial Senate contests around the country, national protests for racial justice, and, of course, a global pandemic. But the political landscape is changing, and we wanted to take time to hear from you, the listener, about what you want and what you need in your political coverage. And you've been telling us that you want to consume politics in lots of different ways. So although this show will stop popping up in your feeds for the moment, we will be bringing you something new soon. So do watch this space, because the team is digging deep on a new story, and trust me, it's going to be worth the wait. Okay, so let's dive in to today's episode because it's time to tune out the noise and tune in to what's politically sound. Now that Joe Biden's first hundred days have come to a close, the president and his party seem to be in a somewhat enviable position politically. The president has the support of a majority of Americans and is getting very good grades from the American people for his handling of issue number one, the coronavirus. We see those vaccination rates continuing to go up throughout the country. And there seems to be some light at the end of this pandemic tunnel as the economy is sputtering back to life as well. Of course, there are some warning signs. Inflation fears are real among some economists, and pretty long odds for Joe Biden to pass all of his big progressive spending programs through a Congress that is as narrowly divided as one that I have ever covered. But for the most part, things appear to be on track at the moment for the Biden administration. On the other side of the aisle, Republicans find themselves with a new litmus test, fealty to former President Trump. It's a potential problem in the long term. But right now, that commitment to Trump is providing one heck of a sugar high for the party. They think it is by far their best path to actually winning a House majority in 2022. So that's where things stand in May 2021. But politics is all about the future. And so today, we're going to take you through what you should be looking for in both the upcoming midterm elections next year in 22, and of course, look farther into the future, into the 2024 presidential election, because, well, for us, it's never too early. And to do that, I couldn't have a better dance partner than CNN chief political correspondent and the co-host of State of the Union, Dana Bash. Dana, thank you so much for being here.
1: Are we going to do the tango? Or are we going to do swing dancing? What, what's your preference today? Any dance you
0: want. I have danced with you, so I, I
1: feel I know. pretty uh, I'm so, I'm familiar so with your
0: dance floor moves.
1: Yeah, <laughs> you've got—you're the one with good moves, David Italian. Oh, thank you. It's
0: thank true. You. So let's dive into this. What does the snapshot of where we are tell you? And what do your sources tell you from the parties then about where they think? sort of the body politic, is going in this next year and a half?
1: First of all, it's so good to be on with you. Hi, David. The answer is that the Republican leadership in ousting Liz Cheney and the reason for ousting Liz Cheney is because they are full-on embracing Donald Trump and Trumpism, and they see that as the path back to the majority, which may sound weird for people out there saying, wait a minute, uh, you know, nationally, Donald Trump's numbers are, you know, in the toilet. And how can he be the path for anybody to win anything right now?
0: And last I checked, he just lost the presidential election.
1: You never mind that. (laughs) Fair point. So, David, as you well know, the reason that that is their calculus is because They see that the small number of House seats that they need to retake in order to take the majority in places where they don't want to stir up the Republican base against Republican incumbents who they believe are the only way that they can win. People who are on the right side of the truth, but on the wrong side of Donald Trump— If there is enough traction and if Donald Trump gets in to those races aggressively enough to actually, in a Republican primary, beat those incumbents, then they're going to lose the seat because they can't win against a Democrat in those very few remaining moderate swing districts. That's the reason. They want to try to stop the conversation. Here's the problem there's one person who doesn't want to stop that conversation, who they can't control, and that's Donald Trump himself. He's not letting it go, and he is still pushing for candidates to topple these Republicans who voted to impeach him.
0: And although it is um, far more rare today than when you and I first started covering uh, Congress and congressional politics, there still are a few districts, I think a total of 16 now, if I'm not mistaken, where the representative— Uh, that was elected in 2020 is of a different party than the presidential candidate who won that district. But there still are, I think, seven Democrats, Dana, sitting in districts Mm -hmm. that Donald Trump won Mm -hmm. in 2020, even though he didn't win the presidency. What we also saw in 2020 was Donald Trump's ability to turn up Republican turnout. Even though it did not help him win the presidency, it is actually what put House Republicans within five seats of the majority. So, yes, there is the fear of him creating nominees in tough districts that may make it tougher for the party to win those districts. But they are also, I think, tied to this need for him to turn out the base to just win the numbers they need in order to win the majority, you know, in, in all kinds of
2: districts.
1: The question that will be put to the test in 2022 that will decide which was the sort of the prevailing dynamic, was it 2018 when Donald Trump was president but not on the ballot and they lost, the Republicans lost so many seats, or was it 2020 when he was on the ballot and what you were talking about, Republicans actually won back some of those districts, you know, even in California, for example, where Donald Trump didn't even come close to, even coming close, there were... Republicans who won back um, those seats like in Orange County, for example. So 2022 is going to be fascinating because, of course, he's not on the ballot in any way, shape or form, but he's going to be pushing it much like he did in 2018. Will he have that kind of oomph that he had before when he was president?
0: Yeah, I mean, tough. The one thing, it's not to be on the ballot, you're still president. Not on the ballot and not president and still thinking that you could dictate the environment. That may be trickier, Of course, it's not just the House. It is also a battle for control of the United States Senate, which we know is evenly divided, 50-50. And, um, you know, the map at the outset for the Senate in, in 22 is uh, a bit tougher for Republicans just in terms of the raw numbers of what they have to defend. So they're defending 20 seats that are up, Republican held currently Republican held seats, and Democrats have 14 seats uh, this cycle to defend. So so right there is one thing. Plus, Republicans have some open seats now with retirements. In, mm-hmm. A lot of retirements. Yeah, like in North Carolina where Burr's retiring, in Pennsylvania where Toomey's retiring, Ohio, which has been a Republican-leading state but still one that could prove competitive, uh, given the environment, depending what it is, uh, where Portman's retiring. So you got you got not just— Missouri. Are, yes, although I think that is a much harder play for Democrats. But my point is that, like, they have more turf to defend the Republicans. They also have some open seats, which are tougher than an incumbent election for the most part. Whereas the Democrats, they've got some tough defense to play also. They have Mark Kelly in Arizona, who's up again, right, because uh, mm-hmm. he won in a special election there, basically. And— Warnock in Georgia is Mm -hmm. uh, up Mm -hmm. again. So two of their candidates that flipped seats last cycle Mm -hmm. in states that flipped in the presidential in a year without the presidential battle at the top of the ticket, like you're saying, in just recently red states, those are going to be tricky to defend as well.
1: And add to that the voting restrictions. Oh, well, there you go. That the Republicans who lead those states, both in the governor's mansion and, more importantly, in the legislatures, have just put in place to make it even harder for—or trickier for the Democrats who voted last time and turned those red states blue on the Senate side and on the presidential side, too, in Georgia— question is how much of an impact that's going to have.
0: Yeah. No, that's a a real question. I want you to hear this ad that the NRSC, that's the National Republican, and I'm not telling you this, Dan, I'm telling our listeners, that's the (laughs) National uh, Republican Senatorial Committee, uh, the group charged with winning the majority back for Republicans in the United States Senate, because I think it gives a, a little bit of insight into the messaging that Mitch McConnell and his broader operation believe is where they have to be in order to win back the Senate
1: majority. Pelosi, Schumer, and Warnock want to use your tax dollars to fund their political ads. And they'd let people register and vote without showing any form of ID. It's political corruption.
0: So, Dana, to your point about the battle over voting rights, what you're hearing in that ad that the Republicans believe they have as a potential weapon against these vulnerable Democrats, is this bill— S-1, H-R-1, the For the People Act. This is the bill that the Democrats are trying to push through Congress. It already went through the House. At totally overhauling the election system to try to combat what's happening uh, in the states by a lot of Republican legislatures. And Republicans see that as a vulnerability for Dems. Are we going to hear a lot about that from now through next year?
1: Yes, because it's such a broad bill that they passed in the House. And this is referenced in that Republican ad. It's not just about sort of federalizing what makes a vote eligible or not it's also about campaign finance laws and about putting more public money into campaign finance laws with the with the goal of taking private money out <laughs> and um that is by far the biggest political weapon that republicans think that they have against democrats they're doing it because they see something in some data that they that they have been you know, polling on or focus grouping, obviously. I'm just not sure how much that is going to play in the suburbs and then the other districts and um, areas in the in the swing states that are going to determine control of the House and Senate. Do you? I don't know if swing voters are totally grabbing onto
0: this. What I really think is going on here, and talking to some Republican sources, I, I say this somewhat informed, I think that they're trying to pressure Schumer into going into the filibuster war over this bill because this one can't go through reconciliation. So the only way this gets done is if he gets all 50 Democrats, and we already know Manchin has said he's not on board yet with this, to get rid of the filibuster and get this through with just Democratic votes.
1: That's so smart because all you hear from Schumer is failure is not an option on dealing with the voting rights issue on a federal level. He also might... You know, just drop that part of the bill, which is entirely possible.
0: Okay, stay right where you are, Dana. The 2022 elections are just part of the puzzle. There's also a Trump sized shadow looming over the 2024 presidential contest. We'll discuss that next.
2: This podcast is supported by Sleep Number.
0: It may seem like the 2020 presidential election just ended. I guess it's still ongoing in some circles. But believe it or not, the 2024 cycle is already underway. And the potential Republican candidates are shaping today's politics in preparation for their runs. So let me first get your sense, because let's just deal with Trump first, okay? When you talk to people around him in his world— do and I know he hasn't made a decision yet. So this is a pure. Sp- Do they think they are still advising and working for somebody who may seek a return to the Oval Office?
1: Yes, yes. I mean unequivocally yes. That he is not just open to it. He is planning for it. He is hoping for it as of now. Um, you know, I've talked to some people who say privately he's left open the possibility that you know he might not feel up to it because he might be too old. I think that that is, I can't imagine that 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 sounds so uncharacteristic of Donald Trump uh, to, to do that. But, you know, the one thing that I have been told to watch for is his continued battle with the social media companies. The fact that they won't let him on and Facebook made the decision to keep him off. That could have an impact on whether or not he runs because he is such a social media and had been and and thrived, became president because of his social media presence and interaction with people on social media. And it's not just about messaging or getting his
0: uh, thoughts out there or amplified. You have to remember how much money he raised off of Facebook mm-hmm. and the targeted advertising that was done. The reality is... Without Facebook—I won't even say social media more broadly—without Facebook, Donald Trump would likely not have won the presidency in 2016. And by the way, I'm not asserting this. This is people around him who believe this to be true. And so I think it is harming him even in the early maneuverings right now to be off of Facebook. He's not raising as much money as he otherwise would have, and he is not able to sort of seed the ground um, in that targeted way. He obviously still has— a huge amount of devotion from his base of support. I'm not suggesting that, but not in that way where people were being constantly bombarded, not only with his message, but quite frankly, with the sort of... um Disinformation campaigns that have been out there that are uh, allied with him and with trying to create division in the country—all of that uh, isn't happening either without him fully engaged on that platform. It's a huge yeah. missing component for him right now. I think that's really—it's true. Smart. First of all, it's hard to see him not as the total front runner if he does actually run again in the, for the Republican nomination, right?
1: Absolutely, absolutely, the very clear front runner. I would say.
0: Okay. So then, my question to you is. If he isn't running, who inherits the the sort of Trump mantle? Like, where do you see all that energy in the party that is the defining
1: characteristic of the party right now? Does it go to one person? Are there a couple of people out there that you think it morphs to? I think it's going to be fragmented, don't you? I mean, I think what we're going to see is the Ted Cruz's, the Josh Hawley's, whether or not it's Ted Cruz and or Josh Hawley or people like that, trying to appeal to the Trump base, and because none of them is Trump, they won't get everybody. They won't get even close to everybody, and so it will be split. Which you could argue gives an opportunity to—I'm not sure—it's actually Liz Cheney, but somebody else who is an alternative. It, it could be kind of the reverse of what happened in 2016, whereas all of the populist—you know—they're not listening to us, angry, nationalistic members of the base went for Trump and the rest split the vote. The more traditional Republicans split the vote. It could be the reverse, right?
0: That's so fascinating that's such that's really interesting to think about, because you're right. that sort of establishment wing, if you will, I mean, there was all split
1: between so many mm-hmm. people, and in fact that's the only reason he won the nomination
0: exactly so that so he was able to sort of shoot through all that crowd with plurality of support, quite frankly, but you know when it was that crowded. Mm-hmm. that's interesting to think about, so you mentioned Liz Cheney, who else do you think could play in that lane or be that coalescing figure if the populists are splitting it all up? Who else do you think is out there?
1: Well, I know who wants it, Chris Christie. Yeah. You know, he's been very tough on President Trump, even though he said that he would give him an A overall, which was more Nikki Haley than Chris Christie, I thought. Yeah, I mean, has he been tough on Trump?
0: I feel like he's been all
1: over the map on Trump is really what I feel. I don't know. Well, recently. In, in totality, he's been all over the map on Trump. But, you know, he has been trying, if you look at his Twitter feed, he's been trying to position himself as a more traditional Republican in that he keeps hitting Biden as a big spender, you know, big taxer, somebody who's you know bringing big government into your lives in a way that you don't need it, on COVID and, and so forth. So he wants to be that person. Um, you know, and then the other person is Nikki Haley, And I don't have a clue how she's going to run because every time she says something, she positions herself differently when it comes to the Trump mantle, which is not, I don't think, all that helpful to her as she tries to establish herself. She obviously wants to run for president. And I don't know. What do you think about Nikki Haley?
0: Yeah, I I think she has done an immense amount of damage. Now, it's obviously— super early. She's doing this damage uh, really early on, so there's plenty of time to try and rebuild Mm -hmm. this, but to me, she tried to please everyone and pleased nobody, like, first Mm -hmm. with this, you know, huge Trump criticism and then a complete backtracking of that. She's become almost anathema to the Trump wing of the party at this point, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. I don't know how she brings the pieces back from that. The other person out there that I just wonder what you think of is Mike Pence. Like, Mm -hmm. He wants to run also. He served for four years as vice president. He seems to be persona non grata uh, to his former boss in many ways. Does he have any ability to get a slice of that Trump vote?
1: I think he can get a slice of it. But, you know, we, we shouldn't underestimate how powerful the former president's attacks of his own vice president are for simply doing his job And from the perspective uh, in, in certifying the Electoral College votes on January 6th, and from the perspective of the president and the people who believe the lies that he has told, sold him out by not doing what he could to stop it. He couldn't do anything. Let's just get that straight. He could not do anything. It was not in the purview of his job, in the Constitution, nothing. But that doesn't take away, again, the lies that people who would potentially be Pence backers have come to believe thanks to Donald Trump.
0: Do you think there's a space for him? I mean, I think there's a space for him, as you said, to get a piece of this. But I don't think the space is all that large. I don't rule him out being able to put something together. But my takeaway, actually, it, what, from everything you're saying, is how crowded the battle, because of how dominant the Trump base is inside the party, how crowded the battle for that side is, and what if— After all of this, after Trump's success and Trumpism living on beyond Trump and the sort of tortured way the Republican Party has to twist itself right now to to deal with him, if it's all of that that actually causes a more broad appeal, not just in the party but to America largely, kind of Republican, to emerge in this next field, that would be just a fascinating coda to all of this. Dana Bash, thank you so much for joining me on this last episode of Politically Sound. I really appreciate it.
1: I am so honored. I am so grateful to be here. And I could just keep talking to you for hours and hours.
0: Thank you, my friend. Take care. Bye. That's it for this episode of Politically Sound. Thank you so much for listening. We are incredibly grateful to all of you who've tuned in. And we can't stress enough to stay tuned. The team is going to bring you an amazing political story later this year. And of course, you can still hear my analysis on the top political stories every day on the CNN Political Briefing. I'd really appreciate it if you would listen and follow wherever you get your podcast. To find your next great listen on all sorts of topics beyond politics, go to cnn.com/audio. That's cnn.com/audio. And finally, I want to give a special thanks to everyone who worked so hard to make this podcast possible, including my co-host Nia Malika Henderson and especially our team at CNN Audio. Will Cadigan, Mimi Mutessa, Emmanuel Johnson, David Toledo, Francisco Monroy, Haley Thomas, Megan Marcus, Ashley Lusk, Lindsay Abrams, Lisa Namoro, and Courtney Coop. On behalf of all of us, I thank you so much for listening.